Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today, we're delighted to have Carlos Eduardo Espinal, managing partner at Seedcamp, Europe's seed fund. They invest early in world-class founders attacking global markets and solving real problems using tech. Welcome to the podcast, Carlos. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Well, it's great to have you on. So it's been over 10 years now that you've been at Seedcamp, but maybe you could take us back to how you started out and your journey in getting into venture capital. Yes. Well, yes, it seems like a long story now, long ago in a galaxy far, far away kind of thing, right? <laughs> so yeah, I worked early, early days of my career. My first five years were in tech as a sort of an operator of sorts. My first job was as a consultant, a network security consultant. And then I worked at the R&D group of the New York Stock Exchange called SIAC, building out some of the wireless network that they use there. And I think one of the things that drove me to venture was that I was looking at a lot of technologies and looking at how they could be implemented on the trading floor. And so I thought that was really cool. And I was like, I wish I could invest in some of these. So I went and I did my MBA so that I could brush up on business. And I know a lot of people are cynical about what kind of skills you need to start and invest in businesses. But I must admit, that was a very, very useful period of my life to explore how different businesses were built and how some failed and succeeded. And then um, I moved afterwards to the UK. I started working in a fund called Dowdy Hansen, and there were very few funds in Europe at the time. And part of why Seedcamp was born was because there was nobody really supporting the super early stages. There wasn't anything. And uh, Saul Klein and Reshma decided to corral a lot of the Series A investors, of which Dowdy Hansen was one of them, into a camp of sorts, uh, hence the name, Seedcamp, and we would come together. And as a collection of funds, we'd make decisions. So the first fund of Seedcamp was a 2.5 million fund of effectively friends in the community who were not investing in the stage, but would come together, put some money in into a very small fund to then help uh, spark that. And Rashma was running it solo at the time. And so I was involved as a sort of LP slash mentor in the way that others were as well. And I knew Rashma, we're both you know, the same age and we both actually ironically both studied in Pennsylvania and obviously educated in the States. And, and so many, many overlaps in common. And when Fantu was starting to be raised for Seed Camp, she reached out to me, you know, kind of a late co-founder type role and said, hey, look, do you want to help me run this? And I said, sure, let's do it. At that point, I had been at Dowdy Hansen for about four years and then came over. And now it's been 10 plus years that I've been working with her and the organization's grown. We're like over 14 people now, and we've made over 365 investments. And you know, early days, it's really crazy to see how Seedcamp One, which we were investors in as part of uh, Dabby Hansen, I had 22 investments and it was a 2.5 million fund. And then now we're just raised our fifth fund, you know, which is over 70 million. And it's just crazy how time flies. So yeah, that's the very expedited version of the story. No, it's great. And did it start out investing in UK only or was it always Europe-wide from the start? It was always Europe-wide. And actually, one of the benefits of Seedcamp early days was that in order for us to be able to invest Europe-wide, we had to set up events Europe-wide. So we came up with ideas like mini seed camps, and these mini seed camps predated Web Summit, predated Slush, predated all these sort of larger events. And actually, that helped us build our community. And so in Eastern Europe, we went quite a bit. And that's where we met a lot of the Romanian network, some of our friends at How to Web, which is a, a very well-known event in Romania. 
And of course, those relationships then blossomed. And of course, we got introduced to the founder of, for example, of UiPath, which is one of our investments that's, you know, the title of your podcast fits, right? So it's strange how a lot of these early investments that we made in the community, not investments in investments, but investments in the community really played out well for us because we were genuinely trying to bring together Eastern and Western Europe and providing an information flow between both sides of Europe. And that was a critical part of early days seed camp. Yeah. And you mentioned UiPath there. Which other notable companies might our audience have heard from that you guys have invested in? Yeah. I mean, look, the network's quite big. So it depends on who your audience is, right? Because whoever's listening to this will probably know a lot of them. But, you know, like the ones that clearly on the news more often than not are like the UI paths, the transfer wises, the revolutes, you know, the hop ins, um, we foxes. And then we have other ones that are more like they are quite, you know, they're well known in different realms. Uh, you know, one of them, you might have eaten the product. It's called this. And they make the plant based, you know, chicken and bacon and they're pretty much in all supermarkets now. So, they, you know, it's quite a range of products and services and software that we've backed. Yeah. And you mentioned Hopin there. So they've gone from zero to something like 2 billion valuation in a year or something. How did you guys first come across that team? And how did you know that this was going to be something interesting in a pre-COVID world? Yeah. I mean, I think how you meet companies, that story is, is super interesting because at the end of the day, it comes down to relationships, right? You meet people who introduce you to people. And that's the same for every one of our investments. Every single one of our investments has been somebody who's helped us meet somebody, made an introduction. And, you know, we, we obviously very thankful for the fact that we have a lot of people who, who help us with that. And that's why it's really important to, to sort of build those bridges. And when we backed the Hoppin team and Johnny in particular, what we saw was a conviction and the conviction about what needed to happen. Now, of course, this was pre-COVID, so nobody knew that everything was going to go online. And there's an element of luck that you need, right? Like you have to face the fact that as much as you can build an... I actually, right before this chat we're having, I was chatting with another founder whose business was negatively affected by COVID because they were in travel. And they were like, look, I had everything except luck. Like the timing of COVID was just not in our favor, in our industry's favor, Never mind our startup, like the whole industry. And so I think that there's an element of luck for sure. And the luck is in timing and competitive dynamics and, and sort of externalities. But a large part of it has to be like your conviction as a founder, you know, like, and whether or not it's something that you really truly believe in, not just something that you've did a, a calculation on that you figured would be a good business to go into. And Johnny's story is quite uh, personal and I won't share it because I don't know how much he shares publicly, but it was a very personal reason why he started it and his desire to be engaged in events where he previously was not able to be engaged. And so, you know, it's a very, I think it's a very honest and authentic angle to then put a lot of energy into building what you're building. Yeah. Well, maybe we get him on the podcast and we get yeah. that story firsthand. Yeah. And so those companies you mentioned are, are all unicorns and they're very big. There's been a sort of age old question about whether Europe can actually build and host a sort of Google or the next Google. Do you think that's a question that still gets thrown around? And do you think it's still a challenge for the European venture ecosystem? Or do you think we've moved past that now? No, we've definitely moved past it now. I think that what's coming to light is that there's so many changing variables. I mean, like, look at, I don't know when this will be published. So for the listeners, 
this might be like old news or new news or recent <laughs> news, but you know, you look at what a simple privacy change in WhatsApp has done to subscriptions for Telegram and Signal. Like, it's like 500 new signups. I think the CEO was saying like 500 million. I, f- I forget what the stat was, but it was big, right? And it's yeah. And you look at that and you think, why is that happening? Well, it's happening because there's a migration in terms of expectations of privacy. Okay, well, where are there high privacy laws? Well, Germany is one of the countries that has high privacy laws. So when you look at a large company like Google, there's a lot of things that made it big. One of them is obviously amazing technology and amazing people. But that was also built on an era where there was quite a bit of geographic concentration of brain power. With COVID, it's all distributed again. People have gone back to their homes. They're all over the place. So that factor has been eliminated. Regional rules like data privacy, as I mentioned before, that also migrates things. Some services are migrating from around one part of the world to another part of the world. You have different issues popping up like climate change technologies or social impact technologies or food technologies or financial services technologies, which favor highly connected countries rather than one one block. So you look at not the, this isn't like a one, like Europe is growing because something else is declining. No, it's the other way around. It's more of like, there's two parts of the world that are growing but in different things as industries kind of go and, and cross continents because of the nature of what demand is pulling for that industry. So I definitely see that those days are gone where Europe was seen as like not the source for growth or innovation. Now it's like, which ones? What will it be the epicenter for? You know, which are the areas? I mean, FinTech, I think it's winning, if not already won. Because if you look at Adyen, you look at Stripe, you look at all those major companies, they're all European companies in different ways, right? Yeah. And so I think that war for sure has already come from Europe. So what else and what's going to happen, you know? And then there's some er- other areas of where I don't think it'll be Europe, you know, in the near term, but maybe the long term, but like a pick an easy one, just like, you know, electric vehicles, you know, it's like, okay, yes, there's BMW and, and there's a lot of the industry here. And, but, you know, like there's a lot of investment coming out of China towards electric vehicles. You know, I suspect the Chinese are probably going to start moving really quickly with some key technologies there. And from what I know, they have some of the biggest supply of lithium as well in terms of a global resource. So, you know, like it's a moving landscape. It's going to be very exciting. This is going to be a very exciting 2021 onwards. So stay tuned. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I completely agree on the European fintech angle in particular. And yeah, I mean, I think someone like China with EV, you know, they have the sort of political infrastructure that they can move very quickly to change things something so fundamental to the way people move very quickly so i completely agree so in that regard you know what sectors are you guys focused on at the moment if any and do you fish outside of europe and encourage companies to set up in europe or do you generally just invest into companies that are already established here so in terms of who we back we back european founders or European companies. And really it's just because you need to have a focus. Like I there's no prejudice there with regards to a company being started somewhere else, but it's very hard to cover a US from Europe as a fund with you know a team of 14. Like you have to be on a plane. You definitely have to go and keep those relationships alive. And it's a very different, different kind of scenario, right? So I think both from a cultural point of view, from a focus point of view, and from like an investment point of view, Europe is our main focus. And relationships can sometimes mean that we meet founders that are European that have started businesses somewhere else. Like we have backed European founders in, in Hong Kong, for example, we have done that. So 
you know, it's, there isn't like a super hard rule there, but, you know, we want to keep a tight focus there. And remind me the first part of your question. Uh, the first part of the question was kind of, are there any areas or sectors that you guys are particularly keen to see more deals around or that you think Europe has an edge in, so you want to invest more into? Yeah. And so the, the areas that we want to invest in, I think that the big thing with how much change is going on in the world right now is that it gives us a lot of visibility on major, major industries that have been locked in, being unlocked for early stage startups to take away. So for example, if you rewind the clock and you look at fintech in 2010, if you look at a company like TransferWise, it had to sort of chip away at the sort of fringes of core finance, right? Whereas today, you know, we backed a company called Griffin and it's like literally building core finance from within outwards, right? And so that took a decade. And so with that in mind, and with, you know, now 300 plus companies that we've backed, the idea is, okay, what can you chisel away at that has that similar dynamic, right? And health is one of those, like healthcare, not just healthcare technologies, but like healthcare, like the whole thing, like everything from insurance to policies, to diagnostic technologies, to data management. And that I think is going the same kind of transformation. It's going from a external, you know, look at easy stuff, to regulated stuff, to core health stuff, to diagnostic stuff that's life-saving, and then all the way down to hardware, and then all the way back, right? You integrate that whole stack, and then you'll have um, some stability there probably at the end of the decade. So we're definitely looking at that. We're looking at everything. The DTC stuff is always fun, and there's always changing. We're always looking at anything having to do with entertainment and how people are going to be, especially now with what's going on in COVID, but it's different kind of entertainment, like, you know, whether it be the collectability of items or whether it be sort of assets, you know, just people obviously want to, to both be educated and engaged. And, and so that's another area, of course, food and social impact and environmental technologies. You know, I mentioned this, there's another company that we back called Silvera and, you know, they're trying to help people assess their impact or organizations assess their impact and then mitigate them. And so I think there's a lot of these big, big problems. And we've just tried to like find all the pieces that could try to solve it. And we know some of them will take a decade to really, really manifest themselves. Yeah. And in health, there's a lot of companies that are sort of pre-clinical trial. So that must be a real challenge for a seed fund to analyze which ones are going to get their clinical approval and, and go big, essentially. So yeah. What do you look for there? Is it very much the, the individuals that are building that company? How do you assess something where it's very hard to assess? So I want to make a division between health and pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical, we don't do. I think pharmaceutical is a specialized division of investing, and that's an expertise. Just like there are you know, areas of expertise in investing that you know, it's just you need to have you know, semiconductor investing, you know, anything where there's or hardware investing, there's some elements of manufacturing and the process of approvals that I think is harder for like a smaller fund to operate in. So if I take the spirit of your question though, and I say, okay, moving away from like clinical trials of drugs, which is not our thing. If you look at into approvals of technologies, usually what happens is that there are technologies that I've seen that we've backed and that we're involved with where there is a validation point for the clinician. The clinician can make a faster assessment, but the responsibility sits on the clinician side. And then whether later down the road, the technology can do that um, is a separate thing. I'll give you an example. 
where investors end up coming to called Thriva. It does blood analysis. Now, the company itself doesn't do the blood analysis. The clinicians that receive your blood parse it and then give you sort of analysis on that. Does that mean that Thriva doesn't know that your numbers are slightly off? Yeah, of course it does. Of course, because if they're helping you with that, they would know that you're off track or you're going up and down and how you're tracking. But from a regulation point of view, that's not in the remit right now, right? Will it happen in the future that, you know, maybe technologies can give you an early indication that you're trending negative? Yes, but we need to see how regulation changes to give clinicians, empower clinicians to be able to use that to give you better decisions. So that's what we're going to be seeing over the next decade, how that's going to evolve. Yeah. So actually, episode three is with Hamish from Thriver for anyone who's interested in going through the back catalogue. And I've got my Thriver kit here, which I need to do for this quarter. So I'm a big fan of that company. Yeah, I completely I get what you're saying there. That's really interesting. So you must see hundreds, if not thousands of pitches each year. What's, you know, what's a pitch that really sticks out in the mind that you know, was a game changer or the best pitch you've ever seen? Yeah, it's a really hard question to answer because I think the days of like best pitches from the purposes of, of like gimmicky type things, those days are gone. Like I think there was a time when people were experimenting with that, you know, dropping F-bombs or doing that kind of thing. I think now so much around pitching is around chemistry matching that they're just conversations you enjoy. Like some of the best pitches that I've had are conversations where I was able to have a, a sort of debate on key areas of the business with the founder. Like, not necessarily with a view that I was right or that they were right, or it's just kind of like, yeah, maybe the customer will do this or maybe the customer will do that. And these are the reasons why I think the customer might do this. And these are the reasons why the customer might do it. And it just gets you a feeling whether or not you can tackle the problems that the company's gonna have together as a partnership, or whether it's something that you know you're probably not gonna feel is a good relationship. So. I think that's probably the best pitches are the ones where you feel like there's a chemistry with the founder. Yeah. Yeah. So how big is the seed count team now? Yeah, we're at 14 now. Nice. And what do you guys look for when hiring at seed camp? It's a good question because we've hired a lot of people who are not necessarily the obvious person to be in, in what we do. And the key attributes are, obviously likability in the sense that we know that it's very important that our founders can reach out to any one of us and not only have a good conversation, but also have a relationship with our founders so that it goes both ways. And then after that, it's a curiosity, really, because everything that we do is so fast changing that you need to have a deep curiosity to explore new things. I mean, it's amazing how one year there can be nothing and then the next year there's an ICO craze. And then it goes back down. And then now there's like, you know, it's like, it's insane how fast our industry operates. And, and as a consequence, if you don't care or you don't want to care, then it's really hard for you to stay on top of that and not feel fatigued. Yeah, for sure. So what's next for Seed Camp? And what would you also maybe add on to that? What would you like to see more of in the European venture space from VCs as well as startups? I think... The way things are at the moment are very confusing, I think, for all of us with COVID, right? So I think what we're seeing is looking at a lot of connections being done far more easily than ever before because Zoom's made it easier. There's less excuses for US investors to get on a Zoom call to meet a founder. There's less excuses for angels around the world to meet founders from wherever they are. And so what's happened is that a lot of the things that we were hoping would happen, happened a lot faster. 
last year in terms of bringing the best minds to work for founders, bringing the best communities closer to founding teams and to businesses. The question is, when this all ends, can we keep that? Can we keep that proximity? Can we find a way of retaining that? And so I think that's the biggest thing that I want to see is how do we do that without having to go back to the mega events? You know, like if you remember like two years ago, like you would have these mega events once or twice a year and you try to rush all those things, you know, now we don't have that. We have something different and it's a lot easier and more convenient and more personable on the one hand, but you still need that sort of physical meetup. And so that's the thing I'm most trying to see is how will this look post lockdown? Can we keep that level of connection, but build on it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so we asked two questions at the end of every podcast, which is the first one is, if you could have started one company, which company would that be? So this is my opportunity to do a shameless plug of of my (laughs) podcast. Yeah. The 2021 first podcast was of Jason McCarthy, founder of GoRuck. And it was published yesterday. So the, no, actually two days ago. So the 13th of Jan. So for those of you that are watching this, we recorded two days later. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is not because I would have wanted to start GoRuck, the company. But one of the things that I found really inspiring about my interview with Jason was his ability to have a community that really engages with each other. And in some ways, that is what Seedcamp is. And so I'm very happy with what we've built and it's very rewarding in that sense. So I think if I were to start another company and it wasn't like, let's say what we're doing right now, it would probably have some of the same elements that Gorak has and Seedcamp has, which is mostly, you can put aside whatever it is that the company builds. It's the fact that there is a group of people who are engaging around that. And a lot of people throw the idea of a community around. They throw it as like, oh yeah, we have a community. And they don't really, like they have a bunch of people, they have customers and that's different. The difference between a customer and a community is the community is engaging with each other. And that's the key thing. And so I think that's what I would, if I start another company, I mean, obviously you want it to be successful and profitable and all that stuff, right? But I think from a, from a self-actualization and, and sort of a feeling of like you're doing something good, I definitely feel like I need that. Yeah. So would you say that community is when they're talking without your involvement? Yeah, when you're facilitating people to connect with each other in ways that you don't have to actively supervise or initiate and that you can have the culture and the spirit of what you're trying to do be obvious to them in a way that breaks the ice for that initial engagement. Yeah, that's super interesting. You're right, community is banded around a lot at the moment, uh, particularly by founders who are fundraising and 10,000 followers on Instagram doesn't necessarily mean you've cracked community. So that's really interesting. And so then the second of those questions is if you could have a working lunch with anyone and pick their brains for an hour, who would that be? I think one of the things that fascinates me is understanding how certain brands do a really good job of understanding those communities, understanding people. And, you know, you look at magazines like the Condé Nast Empire and you look at emerging magazines like Suitcase Magazine, and you look at people like Oprah Winfrey, who has a book club, and all of them are, they're just very switched on to how, what's latently sort of a top of mind for people at the moment. Of course, like 
you look at some of these magazines that I mentioned, a lot of what they're talking about right now is what everybody wants to do once they get a lockdown, right? So there's a latent demand there. And I think a working lunch would be interesting just to get a sense for what people's emotions are. Some of them are pretty damn obvious, right? So they wouldn't be like, they wouldn't take a genius, but it's also kind of like getting a sense for like how concrete some of these sort of COVID resolutions will be going past it, right? Like I say COVID resolutions in the same spirit that you, people would say New Year's resolutions, you know, it's like one of the COVID resolutions is, is people want to stay connected more, you know, like in a way that maybe they didn't calling their relatives more or appreciating little walks around the neighborhood more, you know, but how does that manifest itself in terms of how the world will be, you know, for the next decade? So it'd be an interesting lunch with some of those people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for coming on. It's always great to chat to you. And there's lots in there about the state of European venture and what's going on with Seacamp and what founders should be working on and looking out for. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do a recording with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.